gracious with, with his provisions for me. Also, it's just neat to see God orchestrate the timing of it. Sarah and I have been burning the candle at both ends lately, and you parents who have raised children will know what we're talking about. It's like they start growing up, and the next thing you know, they've got more events on the calendar than you do. It's like, hey, when do these little people get lives? God knows that we've been busy, though, and he provided the perfect little window of time for me this week to write this teaching. The calendar was pretty open, so I just want to say, praise God for that. He feeds birds, clothes fields, and clears calendars. When Derek asked me to teach, I had almost no hesitation in responding. Uh, responding to him, uh, because I had been, this teaching had been on my mind for a while. So, I know we are nicely snuggled in Luke, and just loving the Son of the Most High series, but open your Bibles to Isaiah 49. God started our year in Isaiah, and he's going to bookend it in Isaiah. So before we start through the passage, though, I just want to say a few things about the book of Isaiah. Remember back in July when I had the opportunity to speak about the blessed joys of Bible reading? Remember how I said it's okay to wrestle with Scripture? It's okay to not understand it the first time? And to be patient in allowing God to ready you for a time when he will reveal it to you? Isaiah is a beast of a book. It's not written in chronological order. It's hard to keep track of who's who. Um, Isaiah speaks in extraordinary ways. He speaks about people from the past, and he speaks to people in the future. And sometimes he seems to be prophesying threefold, like he's talking about future events, like in the near future. Uh, and then he also speaks uh, to somewhat, somewhat near future things and the yet-to-be future things. There's some truly sad and hard things to read about the wickedness of man who is zealous about living in an unrepented state. There's some really weighty things in Isaiah, things that can cause good Bible-believing God-loving, Jesus-following saints to have strong disagreement on. But let me encourage you, because Isaiah is intimidating, but like all Scripture, God wrote it for you and for you to enjoy. The plain things in Isaiah are the main things in Isaiah. You are intended to understand that the back half of Isaiah is all about the rescuing King Jesus to come. Today's verse is meant to be feasted on. You don't have to be a Greek scholar or have a degree in Old Testament to get today's verse. It's meant to be a buffet. We are not only physically taking in the elements today, but we are also feasting on his words, nourishing our souls, it's meant for you to gorge yourself on the absolute goodness of God. I hope you brought your Thanksgiving Day pants with the elastic in them. Okay, 
So I hope that gives you a very small picture of the book of Isaiah. Now, let's plant our feet in the culture of Isaiah. So we'll be standing on solid ground when we get to interpret our scripture passage for today. When we're reading scripture, we must ask ourselves, what did the author intend, and how will the audience have interpreted it? The people of Israel at the time were an absolute mess. They had abandoned their God for the most part. They were divided as a nation. They had given themselves over to idolatry. They had allowed the pagan nations uh, of the surrounding cultures to influence what God had intended to be a pure race of his holy possession. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, God says that an ox knows its master and a donkey knows its manger or home better than my people. The rebellion of their hearts were driving them into a stubbornness that surpasses a donkey. They are a sinful nation, a brood of evildoers, Children given to corruption. They have, verse 4 of chapter 1, despised the Holy One of Israel. They have been likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They continued religious practices, but their hearts were far from God. The worship was empty. Their sacrifices have become a stench to the Lord that he was sick of smelling. Why do I draw our attention to this? Why is it important to place ourselves in their sandals? I'm not trying to point out the speck in Israel's eyes while I have a log in my own. I'm trying to place this alongside Israel. We are a part of this story. Maybe not identical, but at one point, or perhaps even now, we were so spiritually sick, so spiritually blind, that we were once enemies of God. We did not hear our master's voice and recognize it. We are rebellious. We were and are idolaters of self. We know the best path forward. We maybe throw out a hallelujah while desiring in our hearts to be anywhere else than other than in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. We are a divided people, red states and blue states, my president and not my president. We are in these pages dwelling and mingling among the audience in which Isaiah's voice would have fallen on. God desires a people of praise in his holy presence. Refinement or sanctification is not optional in his people. If you claim him as Lord, he will mold you into the image in which he initially created you to be. For Israel, the Assyrians were the ones carrying the torches God intended to use to light the refiner's fire. And sadly, they invaded and the kingdom fell. So that's where we are contextually this morning. The picture should look like a war scene in your minds. Rubble and debris scattered about, families separated, mothers and fathers bearing their children. This is not hard for us to envision. Turn on the news and you will see destruction of war in multiple countries at multiple times. The scene is set. 
Open your Bibles to Isaiah 49.14. We'll only be reading three verses today, 14, 15, and 16, with most of the emphasis on 16. Isaiah 49.14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Earlier I, I referenced the strange difficulties that come with reading Isaiah how at times it seems to be speaking in almost three directions. This is a great example of this. Where the text says Zion, I believe this to mean, yes, the present people of Israel, and I think it refers to the church actively present today, and I believe it is the prophetic reference of the perfect bride of Christ yet to come. In any case, I feel extremely comfortable to take this verse in for ourselves. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. How often, church, do we make these claims against God? Do we think that God is only for us when the blessings are abundant? And somehow, he must be sleeping when trials come our way? How often do you allow this lie to creep into your head and distort your high view of God? Do you hear the desperation and the cry of isolation? Satan wants believers to feel abandoned and alone. We must correct this way of thinking. It's unbiblical. It's straight from the father of lies himself. James reminds us that faith's best friend is trials. Israel had fallen into a dark unrepented way of life, and God refuses to leave his people in their sin. He created us for his glory and intends to have you holy before his presence. Hear me, my beloved. If you are a believer in Christ, he will be at work in you, molding and shaping you into his image and doing it through the fire of refinement. Verse 15. God responds by bringing the imagery of a mother pouring out her love on her newborn. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. As if he's saying, that's a ridiculous thought. You've seen how mothers gush with pride and love as they look upon their children while feeding them with a love that seems unbreakable. I can imagine God saying, I've given you this physical, practical example of tangible love. Are you saying I'm a bad father? That these fallen, though loving mothers, are somehow more caring than I? Let me remind you, even the best of mothers are fallible, but I am not. I will never forget you or forsake you. Verse 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You are continually before, your walls are continually before me. This verse is so massive, so incredible, so sweet, and so tender that we will put it in first gear and slowly wade through it. Taking it nearly word for word, First thing I'll make mention of is whenever you see the word behold, it should send off alarms, big, bright lights 
should be going off in your brain, alerting us that what is to follow is going to bend the mind. It's a literacy traffic signal directing us to divine truths. It's to say, pay attention, look, with exclamation points. And this verse should grab your attention. I mean, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The fact that this declaration is said to sinful man is almost unbearable to handle. It would be one thing if God engraved the holy, beautiful angels upon his hands, seraphim without sin, an endless flight, proclaiming the endless glories of God that fills the earth. But no. This is said to man. This is a well of truly deep waters. I pray that this holds your imagination for weeks, that you would meditate on this verse in your quiet time and consider the depths of love that God has for you to strengthen you, to protect you, creating in you a faith that loves to rest in the Father's sovereign care. Behold, I. The next word to consider is I. The divine artist is none other than God himself. The holy of holies, the great I am, Elohim, Jehovah, Adonai, El Shaddai, Yahweh, God Almighty, is the narrator of verse 16. He has reached through eternity's past, created a willing mouthpiece in Isaiah, used Isaiah, led Isaiah, cared for Isaiah, protected Isaiah, fed Isaiah, and inspired Isaiah to write for the saints then and the future saints to come. And then spoke through Isaiah to shatter the lie that God's people had allowed the adversary, the devil himself, to bring forth false accusations against the king of kings. Only a sovereign God that is in control of everything could plan this with perfect precision. Feel the power of this. Most of us struggle with planning a holiday dinner, right? At work, I have to be able to see where the job is heading, what materials I need, order the materials in advance, what guy I want to perform the, the task, uh, make sure the correct tools are on site, coordinate with other trades. Depending on how many guys are on site and how quickly things change, I rarely plan something more than just a few days out that actually works the way I planned. I can't will things into happening. God's will, on the other hand, always happens. Perfect wisdom combined with perfect love. Here's something else that we can pull from the eye in this statement. When God created the world, he simply spoke it into being. But look closely at the way he interacts with his beloved creation of man. He's not at a distance. He's close. He shows up in personal form. He's not just a voice in the clouds. He's real, tangible, and touchable. 
the greatest carpenter that has ever existed has carved you on his hands, making you a part of his work. Let me say that again. The greatest carpenter that has ever existed has carved you on his hands, making you a part of his work. He has welded you onto himself, welcomed you in to be a part of his grand work of redeeming love. Behold, I have. Have. Not will or am doing or plan on doing it someday. No. Have. It has been done. This task was completed a long time ago. How long, you ask? Well, 2 Timothy 1.9, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This is pulling on a huge theological thread known as the covenant of redemption or the eternal covenant. It's a teaching that states you are a believer in Jesus because God, the author of salvation, planned on you being a believer in Jesus. Does this cause celebration in your soul? Does it cause rightful humility in you? Knowing that God knew you, and I mean really knew you, before there was anything and chose to have you as his own possession? Do you feel the, the eternal security of this verse? You are written on the palms of the ancient of days. You might be the oldest inscription in the history of literature by far. Engraved. This should be extremely easy imagery for us today in 2023. I have tattooed you on my hands. I have immortalized you on my hands. Like a tattoo, he has literally cut you into himself. Now think about when people get tattoos. They often spend lots of time thinking about uh, what they want and where they want to place it, how big it should be. Oftentimes, people have special meanings behind their tattoos, and sometimes people regret their tattoos. But know this, the Lord has not and will not regret putting you on his hands. Think about it. He puts you on the palms of his hands, visible for all to see, proudly displaying you to the onlooking world, proclaiming, this one's mine. I engraved you, not just your name, but you, like all of you, your person, your image, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works, your deepest, darkest thoughts, the things you love. He knows the future you, the you he is sanctifying you, everything that is you. This is a full, robust knowledge of you that surpasses your knowledge of you. God is not limited in his ability to have multiple thoughts at multiple times about multiple people 
while doing multiple things. He is an omniscient God after all. I'm going to take the last few words kind of a little bit more together. On the palms of my hands. You were placed within the palms of, the, of his hand. The most tender spot of the hand. Also, the spot that when you form a fist is the most protected. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Nobody is lost in the Father's hands. Once inscribed, it's forever. Almost if to reiterate the security of the saint, look at the plurality in the words. Palms, hands. Think back to verse 15 when God was speaking of nursing mothers. When mothers feed their children, how do they hold them? With one hand? No. They draw them in closely and secure them with both hands. Your heavenly Father cares for you with both hands. And unlike novice, first-time fathers, he will not drop you or carelessly hold you like a football and accidentally bang your head into a wall. Sorry, Riley. I was new, all right? The last part of verse 16 says, your walls are continually before me. When I originally read this, I thought uh, it was referring to Israel's emotional walls were up against the Lord. But as I began to dig in and unpack how the audience would have heard this, I discovered the walls reference is speaking about actual walls, physical walls. Walls that would have surrounded a city back in those days. Bigger, stronger the wall, safer the city. The more elaborate the wall, the wealthier the city. The walls in verse 16 are not the walls that Israel has up against God, but rather the walls that God has encompassed Israel in. He means to tell them, I'm out for your protection. I will fortify your towns. I will be your source of security. Nothing will breach these walls that isn't good for you. I'm the gatekeeper. There are no weak spots in the walls that I have up for you. All of us have experienced suffering. Be reassured, saint. Your suffering didn't just happen to breach God's walls. If you are experiencing a trial, know it's for your good. I realize that doesn't make the trial any easier to bear, but know that your Heavenly Father is working all things out for your good and His glory. Be a baby. Know that your Heavenly Father will feed you, protect you, nurture you, and satisfy you. To steal a line from John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Rest in the arms of the Father. Savor this verse. Taste the sweetness of it. Meditate it on it, church family. 
I haven't even come close to hitting the bottom of this well yet. This is deep, rich water that will hold you in dark seasons. It will cause you to lift your eyes to the heavens and cry hallelujah. It will cause, cause dancing in good seasons of life. It will cause you to trust and rest in green pastures. And it will produce worship to the Lord God Almighty. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it enlarges our view of you. We often want to just narrow you down and put you in places that fit. And that, that won't do. <laughs> You're so much bigger than us. Lord, I just ask that you continue to stir our affections for you. We have hearts that want to run in the other direction. I just pray, Lord, that you uh, just, just so intimately come to us and meet us. Help us to rest in your arms. Help us to be a baby. And Lord, I pray that this declaration just so encourage the saint today. And Lord, I pray that if there's any hearing my voice that this declaration isn't, isn't true to, that they're not in the fold, Lord, I pray that your, your decisive will would be so strong in their life that they would just want this, that they would come to believe in you, that they would have the security in you. Lord, I pray that the that it would be a day of salvation for them. That they would see the gospel and see Jesus as worthy. And that they would repent and turn to you. Heavenly Father, continue to strengthen these people in this room. I pray all these things in your heavenly name. Amen.